Good. Like to ask for your attention for some reflections tonight. Um, some of you may know the Satipatthana Sutta, or one of the Satipatthana Sutta's promises um, that if we apply ourselves to these teachings, if only seven days. Uh, Realization is possible, or at least substantial diminishing of our um, the troubles, basically, and uh, corresponding reward if better life conditions next time around. Um, irrespective of where you want to s- place this next time, um, next year, or next week, or next lifetime. Mm. The promise is big, yeah, it's an auspicious promise. and um, So I think it makes sense that we try to deliver some more of that big message. You know, the Satipatthana teachings are usually um, reduced to one, or some of the aficionados have acknowledged that there's two of them in the Pali, which in fact is not true, there's a third one, uh, an abbreviated version in the Abhidhamma. But there's in fact many more Satipatthana suttas. We have translations from them in Chinese and we have snippets from them in other early Indian texts. So there's a whole range of Satipatthana teachings. And it, it so turns out that um, some of the fascinating little f- facets of Satipatthana teaching are not in the Satipatthana sutta. However, um, let us have a look at some of the fourth chapter in that Satipatthana Sutta, generally referred to as Dhammanupassana, the contemplation of, and now that the, the discrepancies begin, either mind objects or mind states or mind content, or if you want to be really etymologically close, then you would say something like the teaching on mindfulness of the givens, yeah? that which is given. That's probably the closest. It's not terribly meaningful, but that's probably as close as you can etymologically get it. Then the Satipatthana Sutta lists a number of those givens that it finds particularly salubrious and particularly unhelpful and recommends those to our contemplation. That's the place where the Satipatthana Suttas differ most. Many of these res- versions we have of the Satipatthana Suttas are um, quite uh, alike. The Chinese versions and some of the Sanskrit versions are uh, quite alike. There are differences in two sections. One section is the contemplation of body, and one section is the contemplation of Dhammas. And two sets of particular particularly important dhammas are present in all the versions we know. And one of the sets is the awakening factors, of which more in the coming days. And the other set is the hindrances, uh, which uh, I hope to say more about in a moment, the nivaranas. So all recensions of the Satipatthana, as far as I'm aware of, acknowledge that these two sets of dhammas, of states or of objects are of particular importance. One set obviously because it is very effective in bringing about the awakening dynamic and the other set because it is particularly obstreperous to uh, and hindering the awakening dynamic. So you've been cruising this territory for six days and I have sort of sensed that you have a um, more than a passing acquaintance with the topography of hindrances, yeah. <laughs> from a sort of practical level. You, know, you may never have heard their Pali names, some of you who are new in this, but I have a sense that you have some real hands-on practical experience. Yeah. So what I've heard of you and some, a little bit of what I've seen of you in the last days makes me think that you are not unfamiliar with this territory. So I would like to look at them a little more closely. There's a number of teachings on... Uh, a set of conditions called nivarana, translated usually as hindrances, which are particularly hindering our progress when it comes to practicing uh, stillness of mind, when it comes to 
understanding more profoundly the dynamics of our own experience. And they're quickly enumerated. Um, let me name them. The first one is Kama Chanda, sense desire. The second one is Bhyapada, ill will. You remember them as one of the enemies of the Brahma Viharas. Yeah? It's the enemy of the first Brahma Vihara of Metta. The third one is called Tinamida, which is old English fashion is translated as sloth and torpor. Um, it's a whole range of mental qualities that have to do with numbness, sleepiness, drowsiness, lethargy. Then the next one is a double package. It's called Udacha Kukucha, which means restlessness and agitation. And final, if you're still standing, what delivers the final blow is doubt. Vichikicha. Together they're a formidable package. And um, I'd like to go through them both in the way the sutta speaks of them. There's uh, two suttas or several suttas who speak of them, but one sutta particularly called the Sangharava Sutta, name of a Brahman who is the interlocutor of the Buddha who comes and speaks with him. And in that sutta, these hindrances are equated with an analogy each. So I would like to mention the hindrance and then I would like to give the analogy and then I would like to tease out let's say, the psychological or phenomenological way of uh, actually how does this look in practice. Um, these hindrances are sometimes taught to be just meditational obstacles, but in fact they are more. They are obstacles in our life. And these hindrances are also just to, I'm sorry to say this, but there won't be quick fixes for this. Yeah? So I won't be delivering a set of tricks by which you can hold them in check. Or so. The resolution of these hindrances lies in the practice of your lives, not just in the practice of your formal meditation. Um, there'll be some intervention techniques, but basically the resolution cannot be found in short-term uh, symptomatic techniques. So they have to be in some way profoundly met with and engaged with, some of it reconciled and some of it successfully and in an attuned way managed in your lives uh, so that they um, basically stop the mind from losing energy and going into deep stillness. So the first and foremost effect of these mind uh, hindrances is we are not capable of becoming still. The mind lacking stillness will find it very difficult to find transformative insight. It's important to understand this. The teaching on the hindrances is not about morals. It's not about ethics. It's simply about efficacy. It's a pragmatic teaching. If you're interested in making the mind still to understand more deeply what makes you unhappy and what makes you happy, then these things are problems because they stop you from gaining depth, clarity and insight into the dynamics you have set, you have set out to clarify. If these hindrances are gone, then your mind is still. Your mind has easy access to deep states of tranquility and thereby also uh, a very, very improved chance to actually have insights. Not every deep form of stillness inevitably produces insight. You can, uh, Achan Cha quite crudely put it and said, you know, sitting, sitting, sitting. I see some chickens sitting on their eggs for days and nothing happens. <laughs> 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 but your chances that the mind will develop transformative insights are substantially uh, enhanced when you have access to degrees of tranquility. So the story goes, this Brahman uh, turns up at the Buddha and says, you know, you have to Im imagine Brahman, not all Brahmans are priests, but this person was a priest and he says, look, I, I have uh, some question, you know, Gautama, you are part of another religion, you know, we're obviously not in the same camp, but I'd be interested what you have to say on my case. There are days when I find it quite easy to recite the mantras I have learned by heart, even shoddily. Yeah. Vedic priest has to learn a lot of mantras and texts by heart because it's 
part of the Vedic rituals is the, the learning by heart, the transmitting by heart, and the reciting from uh, by heart. So he says, you know, there are days I can recall easily the stuff, even the stuff I haven't really learned very deeply, and yet it's there. And there are days where I find it immensely difficult to recite the stuff I have really seriously practiced and uh, rehearsed. Yeah. What do you have to say? Why is this the case? And then the Buddha responds to him. And I uh, would like to quote him verbatim here. Well, Brahman, um, sorry, this is not uh, poli gender politically correct language. I'm using Morris Walsh's translations here, and I, uh, I like Morris, so I haven't tampered with his text. Well, Brahman, when a man dwells with his heart possessed and overwhelmed by sense desires, and does not know, as it really is, the way of escape from sense desires that have arisen, then he cannot know or see, as it really is, what is to his own profit, nor can he know and see what is to the profit of others, or both, himself and others. Then even sacred words he has long studied are not clear to him, not to mention those he has not studied. So he applies um, to the actual case of our Sangharava, who does not want to know about meditation, who does not want to become a Buddhist, who is not particularly interested in the Buddhist teaching, namely the four truths and the path. But he has a very real-life question. He says, look, why do you think this happens? I'd like to have an explanation for what's going on in my mind. And the Buddha <coughs> makes a couple of statements. He says, dwells with his heart, possessed and overwhelmed by sense-desire. That's the first of our five Nivaranas. And does not know, then he does not know, as it really is, the way of escape from sense-desires that have arisen. Then he cannot know or see, as it really is, what is to his own profit, nor does he know and see what is to the profit of others, or of both, himself and others. The Buddha then proceeds and says, <coughs> imagine... These hindrances, when under the influence of these hindrances, a, a person seeking to understand himself, seeking to recognize his own face, looking for a mirror image in a vessel of water. Uh, that's a very old yeah, therapist in here, a very archetypical image. A yeah? person seeking to recognize his own face, yeah? seeking self-knowledge. You know, Greek reverberations, Temple of Delphi, Gnotis Eauton, recognize thyself. You know, this is an old story. If I want to know about myself, I need to seek a reflection of this self to understand it more better. So this person seeks to recognize his own face in a vessel of water, and he finds water discolored. And the first simile says, if I look into a vessel that has water, but that water is colored, the reflection of myself I find in there is distorted. It is distorted by the color as my mind is distorted by sense desire. It does not recognize things as they really are because my wishing for certain things, uh, my desire for certain things, uh, distorts my vision. It bends my, uh, my, my apparatus is crooked because of the desire that is operative in it. Um. So, if we zoom out for a moment, if you look at these five hindrances, we have sense desire, we have ill will, we have uh, sleepiness and drowsiness, lethargy, we have restlessness and agitation, we have doubt. If we are applying these, the teaching of these five hindrances to our meditative exercises, we can notice Three and a half of those exercises are forms of thought. Yeah? It's important to understand sense desires is not just you sinking your white little choppers into a hamburger yeah? with f full of appetite. Sense desire is uh, for a meditator in a formal situation where he or she has no access to um, sensory stimulation other than their own mind. Sense desire will focus on forms of thought. Yeah? So it's important to recognize when your thinking is propelled by forms of desire. 
Now, forms of desire, that sounds loud and brash, but actually desire is very simple. It is, if something pleasant happens and I want to repeat it, that is desire already. Harmless, we're not speaking of morals, but the wish to repeat a pleasant experience is desire. It's important to understand this. If you do not recognize that movement of the seeking of what is pleasant in your mind or in your life, but in terms of formal meditation, this will happen as a wish to just kind of, oh, that was a nice idea. Let me go through that again. Um, that's a great idea for a recipe. Let me think. I'll just go through this l- once more, but slowly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or, that was a sweet memory. Oh, lovely. That was a great idea. You know, we could spend a weekend there. How would I go about this? Well, look, I think I call her, and then she knows the people who have the house there. Yeah. <laughs> that little harmless thought, that is a thought driven by desire. Yeah. It's not an immoral desire. It's blameless. It's, you know, it's, it's inane in some ways. But what is morally perfectly justifiable in terms of ethic completely okay, in terms of samadhi, in terms of tranquility, is detrimental. So you have to understand things that can be perfectly blameless and perfectly okay and perfectly moral, they can still be detrimental to your attempts to still the mind. You give yourself to a few of those fantasies and you know what's happening. You have experienced so many pleasant things in your life. Even if you think your life is a a collection of miserable events and failures, as some meditators occasionally are prone to think a few days into their retreat, <laughs> you will have experienced so much pleasure and so much uh, pleasant and agreeable things in your life that you could spend the rest of your lives fantasizing about these things or recalling these things, reminiscing these things and varying them and you know, sitting there in the glow of pleasant experiences. You know, revive old loves and constellate possibilities for future fulfillments and um, sit there in the afterglow of a nice conversation or, or uh, you know, whatever, yesterday's pea soup or, yeah. <laughs> anything that gives you this warm, fuzzy feeling, anything that stimulates you, anything, even though the memory of the soup is a lot less fascinating than the soup may have been, the memory still gives you a pleasant feeling. Yeah? It's a substitute, but still it's pleasant. And the seeking of the memory, or just kind of longingly linger a bit. What is it they have put in there? I've heard they put the w- their recipes on the website. I really need to go and check what it was. You know? This is desire-driven discursive activity. Yeah? It's harmless enough. I recognize in your smiles that you've been there. And you know... <laughs> You know, who hasn't played with this? Who hasn't played with sex, with holidays, with things you have had or things you will hopefully have or things that if you twist them the right way are really going to work out better than it actually was the last time? (laughs) Then there's a lot of editing going on. Much of what stimulates our fantasies and particularly our desire fantasies is due to a lot of editorial work. It's the selectiveness that makes things really look good. Yeah? It's the kind of the inner Photoshop airbrush <laughs> kind of tidy up act. You know, I have one of these going on. It's just kind of depending on how the guy is, uh, you know, tempered. You know, my life is full of miseries and failures and uh, dreadful errors, which I have, you know, drunk my cup to the bitter hill. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if I'm in a good mood, my life seems to be just <laughs> just cherries and <laughs> blessed with friends and teachers. <laughs> and you you know, there's days you get up and your life is just, you know, it's a tragedy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One string of wasted opportunities and lost gifts and squandered energies and yeah. So I'm sure you've been there. <laughs> so it's important to notice three and a half or five hindrances have to do with thinking. If you feel that you're beset by thinking in your practice, while in the in, uh, first two days it's probably important you just learn to put this thing 
on the waiting bench and say, okay, this is thinking, I'm not doing this. Thank you very much. I'm going back to the breath or I recall the breath as it is already here, as Jana so beautifully put it a few days ago. Um, you do that. You discipline the mind. And you strengthen attentional focus on a chosen object. But, you know, after a couple of days into that retreat, you recognize certain things are keep, keep coming back. Yeah. You have loops. You have particular scenarios. And there's a repetitiveness to it. And it may well be worth to actually acknowledge more profoundly, hey, what's going on? Why does this beset me so much? Yeah. Is this desire? Is this aversion? Is this doubt? Is this compunction? Yeah. Just to name and acknowledge that the propellant behind a discursive, a tenacious, uh, repetitive, and maybe punishing discursive t- a little tirade that's been going on in your mind, that the propellant in there is of a particular brand, yeah. namely one of the one of these three and a half obstacles. <laughs> so, it is the most natural thing that we seek pleasant experience. Yeah. I told you a few days ago this kind of. Um, pattern that pleasure-seeking is very, very deeply ingrained in our structures. Our body seeks ease, comfort, uh, warmth, safety, food, closeness, proximity. All bodies do that. Um, And it is quite natural that we seek pleasure. It is natural that we seek things we like, things that make us feel good. It is absolutely natural that we seek gratification. In fact, before we can renounce things, it is necessary that we can enjoy things. Yeah? Renunciation that tries to avoid something that it cannot actually enjoy is not renunciation. It's called fear. It's called avoidance. Yeah? <laughs> this is not a virtue, just to be clear. Before we can give up something, we need to be sure that we can actually enjoy it, that we can savor it. If we try to giving up things that we cannot savor because we've never had it or because we're afraid that it would gobble us up if we only tasted it or that we would go you know split at the seams and completely lose all structure and um, dissolve then we cannot just renounce this this is renunciation is only a virtue and it is a virtue and it is a virtue which doesn't have much good press in these days yeah and there is clear message of renunciation in Buddhist teaching. Uh, a renunciation, in fact, that you will already know. You know. We all renounce things to make things happen. We, anything in our lives that will have, that that will want success, will demand from us that we sacrifice things, that we renounce other things. The fact that you're here means you have renounced a whole range of possibilities of how, what to do on New Year's Eve, for example. Yeah. You know. You've missed out on a lot, you know. <laughs> yeah, wild parties have been going on out there. Yeah. Glorious festivities took place without you. You've renounced them all. So we all have to renounce things to make other things that we have chosen possible. Yeah. My statement of I love you means a lot less when I say I love you and I love you and I love you and I love you and I love you as well. Yeah? Or I buy you and I buy you and I buy you or I marry you or I marry you. Yeah? <laughs> the more I repeat that, the less it means in some ways. Yeah? So we need to renounce to make value of what we have chosen. Anybody who has brought anything to success will have had to give up things to make that possible. So renunciation is not alien to us in our lives. Any ambitious person, any dedicated person, any responsible person, any person who upholds a value or struggles or wrestles or engages with one particular battle, task, crusade, will make gestures of renunciation. If we want to develop stillness of mind, we have to renounce the pleasure of warmed up memories of pleasant experiences. We will have to give up the pleasure of playing around with fantasies of things we haven't yet had, but we might have. We might have. Yeah? 
unless we're willing to give up the pleasure and the warmth and the pleasantness that comes from that, our minds will not become still. Yeah? It, that has to be very clear. Theoretically, this has to be very clear. That is why we give up things. That is why we try to focus our minds on a chosen area of our body or our breath. And the act of giving up things, returning to something, even though it is pleasant or fascinating or interesting or, um, you know, it, it vitalizes me, as, as desire often does, uh, if I'm willing to give this up, this willingness to give up things reinforces and strengthens my capacity to give my energy to things I have chosen yeah. in our lives and in our meditation. A second image, Bhyapadam, ill will. <coughs> the analogy speaks of a man that seeks to recognize his own face in water, and the water is boiling, yeah? it's bubbling. Cannot see his own reflection in the bubbles, because the water is boiling with anger and seething with aversion. Again, this is a strongly distorting influence if we want to recognize our own good, or the good of others, or the good of both myself and others. If I am angry, it is very difficult to see my own good. The classic image of a person angry is somebody who picks up glowing coals to throw them at his uh, enemy. Yeah? And what happens is, while he picks up the glowing coals, the first person who gets burnt by this anger is not the enemy. The first person that gets hurt is me, because I pick up the glowing coals. And the wish to hurt somebody, um, even if I hit him, I will hurt myself first. Yeah. A very powerful image. Yeah. The attempt to lash out in anger at somebody is going to hurt myself first. I may do considerable damage <laughs> over there as well. <laughs> I definitely will have done damage here. Yeah. It's not difficult to see that. Yeah. Anger is... Uh, Disastrous for our self-respect. Our friends are pulling back. Uh, trust is taken away from me. Uh, it distorts my face. It is bad for my blood pressure. You know, it makes my veins stand out. Uh, the effect of it is isolating and contracting. It's one of the greatest forms of pain I know, psychological pain, being angry and having having this force ripping through me, yeah? And let alone to speak of all the pain I have when I see um, how I may have hurt others, people often who I care for and people who I love or people who are close, and it's those who get... Um, if we're angry, those are the ones who, who get our anger, most likely. So anger is really damaging. As necessary it is to feel one's anger, not to enact it, but to, to feel it. Yeah? Some of us may need to learn feeling it. But anger is a great poison in our lives. I have no doubt in my life, anger really is a poison. Yeah? Unfortunately, it's falling away rather late in the sort of the nomenclature of, of troubles. You, you have to be an anagami, basically, before anger falls away. Anger and desire fall away rather late in the stages of freedom. So if you know people who are completely free from anger, congratulations, yeah? Keep close to them, yeah? Um, so anger is very uh, strong deterrent of mindfulness. It distorts the functioning on our perceptual level. It distorts the functioning of our l capacity to understand. It distorts our capacity to hold and relate. It minimizes our availability. It's pretty disastrous. Yeah? If you're having a little rage attack, then basically you're psychotic for a short moment, if you want to be blunt. Yeah? There's strong parallels, an anger fit and a little sort of mini-psychotic mini episode, you know. It's difficult to hold relationship. Your perception caricatures whatever it picks up you find a very black and white 
people seem to consist of just the thing that makes you angry and all the other qualities fall away, yeah, you're really warped. Yeah. So anger is really bad stuff. But also its minor colleague, you know, aversion is pretty devastating when it comes to stillness of mind. Yeah. Just two, three drops of vinegar in your blood. Um, disastrous for the mind that wishes to unify. If you can forget the word concentration, it's a bad word. Just think of it in moral terms, you know. Think it's bad. Concentration is a really bad word. It doesn't mean what Buddhist teaching speaks of, when Buddhist speak, teaching speaks of samadhi, it speaks not of concentration. Concentration is a, a muscular, short-term, will-propelled effort to pull your attention back from something and onto something chosen. You cannot sustain this. Nobody can sustain concentration. It hurts. It's not going to work for a long time, and it gives migraines. Yeah? The, no, the teaching on stillness, tranquility, or more precisely on unification of mind, called samadhi or chite kagata or you know eko dibhava, these kind of terms the Buddha uses for degrees of stillness, they have nothing to do with concentration. This type of stillness you cannot willfully make. This is important to understand. This is the result of a skillful application of attention, the skillful choice of an object, and the skillful attunement of your energies to that meditative theme. The result of this, if all goes well, is unification of mind. The mind loves to unify. If you let it, it will unify. If you stop chasing objects or states or things out there and if you encourage it to find peace with one thing then it will deepen it will absorb it will still it's its natural nat natural tendency to do yeah. again Arjun Chah very beautiful says you know if you have a genuine buffalo <coughs> Thai buffalo I don't know some of you will have been in Thailand lovely animals buffaloes they kind of 600 kilos of muscle with nothing to prove this is really impressive <laughs> you know very harmless creature she's pretty you know looks pretty convincing sort of sturdy uh, but very gentle very gentle temperaments I as a monk I often you know, you go out in dawn, pre-dawn, and then go in arms round to the village. And sometimes you see, on the way home with your full arms ball, you see kind of little kids, sometimes girls, you know, little girls with a twig. And then behind the little girl is a huge buffalo. <laughs> 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 you know? and buffalo may have, uh, you know, if it's a really strict regimen, the buffalo may have a little plastic string through his nose and the little girl holds the plastic string. But buffalo the, would do one angry uh, you know, movement with his head and the little girl would be out in the <laughs> rice paddy. But buffalo generally don't do that. You know? They just happily walk behind the little girl and the little girl and the buffalo walk out onto the dry rice field. The rice field is harvested and the buffalo... Uh, is put on a post there and he's grazing the whole day. So Arjun Chah says, you know, if you have a genuine buffalo, you don't, need to how to, you don't need to teach it how to eat grass. It knows how to eat grass. Your job is not to teach the buffalo how to eat grass. Your job is not to teach your mind how to be still. Your mind knows how to be still. You need to make sure that the buffalo is on the right, on the right field. Yeah? On your field. You don't want a buffalo eat neighbor's flowers. You don't want to eat. You don't want him to hang hang in the hedge, yeah, at the village edge or so. You want him to go out onto the right harvested rice field. That's where he can eat grass. That's the sort of grass that is good for him and that doesn't annoy your neighbors. So make sure, meditator, if you want your buffalo to find stillness, make sure that he's going to go on the right field. He's going into the right domain. That's the task. And if it's not there, make sure it gets there. You bring it back there. You don't need to teach it how to become still. Yeah. It's an interesting image. Yeah. The idea of me concentrating my mind is completely alien to that sort of image. It's 
the notion that I can, by choice of the appropriate tools or the appropriate objects of my contemplation, actually incite stillness, not by doing it directly or by willing myself into it, but by finding an appropriate resting place for attention, so that attention can deepen and sweeten itself into uh, stillness, into tranquility, and finally into unification. Whenever you think samadhi, think of unification. Think of what water does in a vessel, so how it applies itself to whatever shape the vessel has. If you have three drops of water in there, they don't hang each in different corners and say, I'm not going to have anything to do with the guy over there. Yeah, they, <laughs> they kind of they flow together and they merge. Yeah. This is what the mind does when it is not excited by seeking, by desire or by aversion. That's why these obstacles, both desire and aversion, are so detrimental to the unification process. The Buddha is very simple and says, you know, make your mind happy. A happy mind is going to be more easily concentrated. A third obstacle, the analogy is the Ah, let me say to the second, because it's an important one. Holding something that incites my ill will or that makes me angry would be part of that obstacles. Now, sometimes my mind does not admit anger. If you just listen to your thoughts, they sound rational. Yeah? What do you think? Well, I'm really committed to the principle here. You know, this is, this is about... This is about correctness, or uh, I'm just interested in, in you know, in rational approach to this. This is, this is not anger. You know? But if you listen to the voice of your mind, you hear its anger. My mind can unfortunately be quite rational while it is already angry. You know? It can sound quite rational, quite reasonable. You know? Really improper behavior, you know, this definitely overstepped her bounds there you know that was beyond what was called for you know, you know it's maybe true but you know the note if i listen to the voice that speaks that way i can detect the aversion i can detect the indignation i can detect the anger so sometimes it's necessary to listen to the pitch of the of the thoughts in your mind, and it's the the pitch that gives away the actual energy that propels the thoughts. So dwelling on things that in, uh, evoke feelings of revulsion, rejection, ill will, aversion, that make me indignant, that produce the pushing away quality in my mind, all these things would be part of the hindrance of ill will, of Vyapada. The third one, in some, way, in some ways, is an easy, uh, it's, it's an honest hindrance. You know, tinamida, uh, numbness of mind, drowsiness, lethargy, sleepiness, it's not a thought. You know. We're clearly out of the domain of thinking here. Um, Sleepiness has many forms. It can, it can come about as a sort of hazy dozy ness, quite pleasant, depending on what you experience generally in your life. Uh, sleepiness may be actually quite a pleasant alternative. Yeah? If you're grieving, uh, or if you're angry, or if you're sad, or if you're confused, then sleepiness may be actually a comfort. So sleepiness may be the, the preferable option to whatever else is going on in your mind. Yeah. The sweetness of falling asleep. Goodbye, cruel world. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Enough for today, I'm out. <laughs> Who hasn't been there? Um, you know, sitting on your on your cushion after the meal, you know, feeling a little dozy. Um, you've learned how to sit now; it doesn't really hurt. You know, you can, life could be a lot worse than just sitting there on a full <laughs> belly, and being very peaceful, isn't it? That's what it was all about, isn't it? Peace. That's what the Buddha taught. 
No striving, please. Do not, you know. I'm well beyond striving. Things are really going well, yeah? It's very peaceful. That could have been a thought, but it wasn't, so maybe... I'm way out of Vitaka Vijara already. Look at that. Great. Neither perception or non-perception is beckoning. Yeah, so... We, we, we can fool ourselves, yeah? Well, both anger and desire, they have a self-declaring function. If we have a certain intensity of either desire or of aversion, we inevitably notice. Generally, others notice before us, but we will notice as well if it is, you know, beyond a certain state. Unfortunately, sleepiness, lethargy, drowsiness, numbness is part of the third of the poisons of mind, namely delusion. And the third poison uh, is structurally different. It doesn't declare itself. Unfortunately, I can be utterly deluded and completely convinced that I am right. I may be way off the mark and I be absolutely free from all doubt. (laughs) I may be be energetically... (laughs) striding into one direction and maybe completely off the path. I have no guarantee that delusion is in any way self-declarative according to certain intensity. You know, there's a couple of very nice things, you know. Mark Twain, <laughs> the classics, is since we've lost our direction, we've, we've doubled our speed or we've doubled our effort. <laughs> it's, a, it's a classic, isn't it? We, we can not be sure when delusion takes hold that we are under the sway of delusion while desire uh, you know after a certain intensity will become obvious you know our eyes are kind of coming out and our blood is rushing and we're fixated on something or we notice but we can be completely uh, confused deluded and lacking perspective without actually being aware of it so it's structurally it's a more challenging obstacle. Yeah. Sometimes Buddhist teachings shows the you know the wheel of becoming and the, the hub. You have the three animals, greed, hatred and delusion represented as the rooster for its uh procreative enthusiasm stands for greed. The snake, poor thing, stands for hatred, and the pig intelligent mammal as it is, stands for delusion. (laughs) And in some of these depictions you see the uh, rooster and the snake actually coming out of the mouth of the pig. So it is only under the influence of delusion that we believe we can find happiness through following our greed or through following our anger. So structurally they are different. That's why Buddhist teachings is always squarely uh, pinpointed Delusion as the major problem. Following greed is already a misunderstanding. Following anger is already a misunderstanding. So our sleepiness manifests generally in formal meditation through some form of nodding. There's different techniques to do that. There's very aristocratic ones, kind of. Or kind of some people kind of keel over their hip. Or, <laughs> there's many, many ways. Some people just kind of go, go into sort of a strange angle and then they kind of lock, you know, something locks there. <laughs> However it looks, and it's not an easy obstacle. It's easily described and we recognize it easily, but it's, it's not actually easily challenged. We do not fall asleep with all our senses at the same time. The first sense to go is our sense of equilibrium. Yeah? It's our sense of balance that goes first. The last sense to fall asleep is our hearing. Yeah? You get all these horrible stories of uh, operating theater nurses who speak over their weekends and the patient is still, still not quite gone. <laughs> they, they believe he is God. He hears every word. Yeah. Um, I've never yet experienced that somebody missed the final gong at the end of a sitting. However, you know, in whatever states of disarray meditators may have found themselves during <laughs> sitting, 
if you whack the gong at the end, you know, it's generally something, bing, <laughs> come back. So we all know that. I, I, in fact, I only take meditators serious if they have struggled with sleepiness or lethargy or numbness of some form. That may come from a number of reasons. Some of it may just be honest fatigue, yeah, exhaustion. People arriving from busy lives on their retreat and struggle with sleepiness. It's the most normal of things. You can't expect a mind to reframe certainly from living on the fast track and then <laughs> going on retreat mode and just with no symptoms. Yeah. We all know this is happening to motivated people, often to people who are dedicating themselves and who are uh, investing considerable amount of will power into their practice and determination. And still they may be sleepy. Then there is the sleepiness that comes from a fatigued body or from a fatigued mind. The fatigued body is easier than the fatigued mind. The fatigued mind, you're really gone. You just, you can't hold your attention. You just kind of, it just crumbles. Uh, a fatigued body, if the mind is reasonably fresh, you can actually be with remarkable degrees of bodily fatigue and still be staying awake. Yeah. But then there are many forms of sleepiness that have nothing to do with honest fatigue. They have to do with camouflaged aversion. Yeah. So sometimes our mind, to break the edge of the aversion, goes into a sort of numb, sleepy, dozy mode. It's a kind of form of self-anesthetization. Yeah. Because it hurts so much being in the state I am in, I just kind of shut down the system. The psyche shuts down the system and numbs it, and that numbs the pain. Sometimes my sleepiness is the lack of clarity of my task because I am not really clear what my task is, what my anchor is, what my object is, what my exercise precisely is. I am falling easily prey. Distractions and sleepiness would be just another distraction. Sometimes sleepiness is, particularly for willful people, the the upshoot of not negotiating with the whole of your being. Yeah? There's parts of you that actually want to go for skiing holidays, that don't want to go for New Year retreat. And these parts, unfortunately, under the dictate of a super-ego dominance, have been squashed. Yeah? And they've been just dragged here to Barry. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they they haven't really much say in the planning of your holidays, but they just, you know, your Buddhist superego just tugged them along and basically uh, foisted that retreat project on this poor part of you which wanted to go and do some deep snow skiing. And um, this part is lying low until morning 5.30, yeah, when you're supposed to do your yoga or your refreshment procedure and then you come in here and then when you're trying to relax and soften your mind so that it actually becomes still this part senses its chance says <laughs> you know she can drag me in here she can make me give up this holiday thing she can you know she can get me up in the morning while it's still dark but she can't make me meditate <laughs> as soon as she lets go I'm all over the place. I just roll in, you know. And you have to let go because you, you can't meditate like that. So you try to relax and pause. And then at that moment, that squ squashed and downtrodden part <laughs> feels its moment and asserts its presence. Yeah? And it just flattens your exercise. So sometimes... Willful people struggle particularly with sleepiness because they do not negotiate with some parts that do not want to be part of this awakening project. Yeah. And the willfulness in which we go about dealing with other parts of ourselves uh, reasserts itself in moments when we let go, when that willful thing needs to let go for the stillness to come in, for the relaxation to settle in. So we, we meet a resistance that has been lying low and in hiding, a resistance that we have provoked by not acknowledging other aspects of our being. So that may be something which we need to renegotiate. Yeah? This part needs to be coming part of our project. We need to win this part over. 
and that means we need to acknowledge its presence, we need to convince it, we need to hear what its needs and so forth. Yeah? This may need uh, doing before your sleepiness stops. Sometimes our sleepiness is a sign that this is not safe. Yeah? One part of you wants a mystical experience now, and the other part uh, says, well, I, I got to work in three days, you know. Nobody's really taking care here. These guys are not safe up front there. Or, I don't have my resources here. This is not the moment for mystical experiences. She's just not taking care of me. And whenever you're starting to get close to anything dangerous to your self-construct, anything <laughs> dismantling, anything um, ill-attuned to your needs, you, you may just experience that an emergency function in your psyche shuts down the system and says, look, she's not going to do any harm if we just take out the energy. We'll put her to sleep. So that happens sometimes. Again, this is more prone, more ambitious people are more prone for this. You may find other things that hide behind your sleepiness. And for me, sleepiness is often not wanting to be where I am. The, the obstacle is not just sleepiness. If you're looking, if sitting there bolt upright, there is no guarantee that you're not suffering from this obstacle. You can be numb, for example. You can be lethargic, or you can be desensitized. The, the words, actually, Tinamida also suggests a, a stiffness, a hardness, something that is brittle and inaccessible, not available, without permeability. <laughs> it's a, a word... Uh, one of the uh, the counter uh, qu qualities is is the quality of being workable, a mind that is rigid and barren. Yeah. Sometimes meditators go in states that are quite still, but they're completely infertile. They are not alive. There is not much mindfulness there. It's just quiet, yeah, sort of the quiet of flying spread eagle through interstellar black space, you know, kind of <laughs> nothing, nothing discernible. So this is not a very productive state to be in. We used to call it bhavanga samadhi, sort of a, a samadhi of reduced mind function. feels peaceful, it's quite recuperative for the body, but it is in no way creative. It is in no way producing insight. We can waste a lot of time there. So the fertility of mind is necessary to produce insight. Stillness is important, but there are dead forms of stillness that have to do with insensitivity or numbness or just barrenness. Yeah. If you kind of walk out and you have this slightly apocalyptic feel after your meditation, <laughs> this kind of moon dust feel, <laughs> it may be one of these. Yeah. Uh, not something to be cultivated. Uh, seek help. Udacha Kukucha Restlessness can be both of bodily and mental origin The bodily is easy It's the kind of production of your body Of an immense amount of physical sensations That all seem to clamor for attention You have decided to meditate on something And then suddenly these ants are kind of walking up your back. Yeah? Or you feel a pull or a twitch or you sense that your blood is cut off. or You kind of realize that <coughs> the lateral vertebrae joint there with the third rib is really blocked and you kind of breathe into it and then you, you kind of readjust this one. And then there's another rib and then there's a few more vertebrae. And, you know, it doesn't stop. This kind of perpetual optimizing of tensions and postures and parts of your soul. And you know, there's loads of muscles and loads of little bones that can somehow be adjusted and optimized. Or you have these weird sensations. Suddenly, you kind of, your hip continues over here from your body. <laughs> yeah? And you kind of really have to verify this. <laughs> so there's many things that can come up. It is as if your body produces all kinds of symptoms to stop you from doing what you have decided to do. It's like the mind fantasizing of 
food, holidays, sex, mathematical qu queries, Sudoku problems and so forth, to stop you from focusing, suddenly the body does something like this. It produces all kinds of symptoms. They all appeal to you, that you do something, that you respond to them. And this response, harmless as it seems, keeps you in continual um, uh, trying to improve something. And as soon as you've improved, it continues somewhere else. Mm -hmm. So you can spend an hour just following little itches or relaxing little topical tensions or redressing your ribs or, you know. And it's important to not give in to this. Spend some time, make yourself comfortable the beginning, two, three minutes, and then after that, negotiate with yourself. If there is pain or if there is discomfort, don't just follow these impulses. Don't just become the, vi the victim of all these occurring, uh, opportunistically occurring impulses. Yeah. Um, restlessness can also be in the mind taking up things and putting them down and taking other things up and putting them down and it's a particular itchiness that goes into the mind it's kind of the irritability this it it's not focused like aversion but it's just kind of everything seems to just be too much or not enough or the wrong kind of sort yeah. agitation is different that often has to do with uh, story it has to do with forms of compunction when you recall that you have done things that were not correct. And many of us recall in meditation by becoming more and more sensitive to what's happening, we recall things we regret. We, re we, we sense that we have lived below our levels of ethics or below our values. Or we have not acknowledged things and now with hindsight we acknowledge them and we, we are sorry. We may be contrite. We may feel um, uneasy. This indeed may make may need to, that we make amends, that we remedy something, that we say sorry, that we apologize, that we symbolically try to um, right that. The problem with this is right now we're sitting in a formal meditation practice and we can't do this. And it's easy to go from the recall that this was really not a great action I've, I've taken there. This was suboptimal behavior on my part. It becomes easy a form of self-punishment. I flagellate myself. I go through this again and again and again. And it's kind of this twitching in here and say, oh, no, God, just the thought of it makes me cringe. Yeah. So we go into such modes or we, we, we torture ourselves with things that we have done wrong or not, not well. And it can really, really agitate the mind and take us uh, into spaces that are far from any sort of unification or stillness. If you have stories that kind of keep coming up and that you can't resolve here, but you keep flagellating yourself with those stories and, uh, you know, the, the, the unhappy role you may play in these stories then. This is something you need to acknowledge, park, Promise yourself that you'll take care of this through action, not through re rehearsing the painful memory of it after that retreat. The sensitivity is wonderful. The ethical impulse is to be treasured. You know, uh, the conscience is an important part of growing up. And yet, hurting yourself by repeating or rehearsing this story, the re recalling the suffering you've created, re Recalling how bad it feels now that you feel what you have caused is a bad story. It's not something that is contributing to, to silence. The last one is doubt, which is an emotion. An emotion that we don't want to feel. It's an unpleasant, as all unpleasant emotion, it's connected with unpleasant sensations in the body. And usually we try to distance ourselves from both the emotion and the unpleasant sensation. And we do that by thinking. We think. We go through probability scenarios. We, you know, we go through the ramifications and try to establish a kind of cognitive structure that makes our doubt go away. And usually just a little shift of, of the parameters and our, 
our scaffolding, our cognitive scaffolding comes down tumbling. Yeah. So you cannot hold an emotion with a cognitive construct. Yeah. You're hardwired, or not hardwired, but you're wired for emotions to be much, much stronger than anything you can think. Yeah. Big emotions, they can just flood you. And a little bit of, you know, uh, cognitive construct, pre, um, pre, prefrontal self-defense is just going to collapse under a big fear or a big uh, bout of anger or a big bout of doubt. So there's no way you can fix an emotion with thought. You cannot even hold it in check. You can pacify it a little bit, but you cannot fix emotions with thought. And you can definitely not fix doubt with thinking through details or thinking or getting certainty or evidence or safety by producing cognitive results. So doubt needs to be met where it occurs, namely in the heart and in the body. That's where you can hold doubt. Some things in that doubt has to do <coughs> with genuine not knowing. And you will have to learn to be more tolerant with not knowing. Some of the doubt has to do with you not being clear about priorities. You know, that needs, your values need clarifying. Some of the doubt has to do with you not thinking things through to an end. Yeah. So again, this is not something you can fix in your meditation. But doubt uh, has to be acknowledged as a state of the heart. As something, a question that you feel should not be there. There are many questions that we can live with. I don't know what's there for breakfast tomorrow morning. I can quite happily live with that question. But I cannot, you know, you can't really live with the question, uh, is this meditation working? Yeah. <coughs> or should I be married to this person? Or can I trust this guy when I want to sit in his car right now? Yeah. You can't really live with that. This is something you need to resolve. And if this crops up in your meditation, it can be quite ruinous. It triggers off, you know, avalanches of cognitive attempts to fix something that cannot be fixed in the mind. Good. Recall. Desire, ill will, numbness, sleepiness, drowsiness, restlessness, agitation, doubt. Intervention technique for sleepiness, just as a little takeaway. Stand up, hands up is wonderful, opening your eyes, emphasizing your in-breath, holding your breath for a moment. Just hold your breath, see what happens. Sometimes brings about a lot of wakefulness. Yeah. <laughs> Stand up may help. Accentuating the in-breath, focusing on the in-breath because it's easier. Those would be little strategies. The sweet first uh, occurrence of the teaching on ear reflexology in the Pali Suttas when the Buddha fatherly uh, gave one of his best meditators, Mahamogalana, who struggled with sleepiness, uh, that you should take heart. Huh? One of the great psychic meditators, gifted like hardly any other, struggling with sleepiness. Yeah? And the Buddha tells him, why don't you massage your ear lobes? Why don't you rub your ears? Yeah. So there are little things you will be able to do as intervention techniques, but the rest you will have to actually address in a larger space. You know, why is this mind sleepy? What is going on underneath this sleepiness? The same with other of the obstacles. Good. Let me stop tonight. Um, maybe it's a chance to look at some of psychological obstacles or uh, obstacles what can happen where mindfulness can get lost or stuck in in purely psychological language on a later occasion thank you for your attention and your patience let's uh, be quiet for a minute and then change postures
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.